This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the historian Richard Kreitner about his provocative new book, Break It Up. The it you have in mind, Richard, is the one nation indivisible with liberty and justice for all. We're taught in school to pledge allegiance. The Union, we fought the Revolutionary War to win, the Civil War to protect and preserve. But you say the American states never were firmly united. Not in 1776, not in 1865, not now. You tell an astonishing and revolutionary story, one that if we hear it right, maybe will save us all. Perhaps you can begin at the beginning of the American experiment with freedom. Well, thank you, Lois, for having me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, the beginning, as I see it, there's lots of places, of course, to begin the American story. Most recently, the 1619 Project has tried to stake a claim for that year. I kind of have a traditionalist account of it, and I start with the Mayflower, which set sail exactly 400 years ago, this month, I believe, or last month, August, um, and landed on American shores. You know, the, the people who were on, aboard that boat, we tend to remember as the pilgrims, and that's the way we're, we're all taught it. You know, but that's not what they called themselves at all. That They called themselves separatists. And that was because they wanted to separate from the Church of England to secede from the Anglican establishment and establish their own congregations. That was illegal in England, and that's why they left. And that's why they came to America, not to seek a union, certainly not to form a new nation, but independent. That's what they wanted, and that's what they, that's what they got. Um, but, you know, as soon as they landed on American shores, they immediately started fracturing uh, into different settlements. You know, if you were upset with what was going on in Boston, you left and you started Providence, as Roger Williams did. If you didn't like what was going on in Providence, you left and you started Portsmouth. Um, and that's basically, you know, I suggest how every town, at least, uh, got its start as a, in the act of secession from another. And really, they wanted nothing to do with one another. Um, New Haven was its own colony, separate from Connecticut. It took, it took some years for them to join together. And um, the first experiments at Colonial Union really weren't very successful, and they weren't very popular. Um, the first one was in New England. It was formed in 1643, um, kind of to coordinate commercial affairs and disputes among the colonies, and especially how to deal with the Indians. Um, but it kind of fell apart within about a decade when, when the different members split over whether uh, the Confederation should join a war that England was fighting at the time against the Netherlands. Uh, some wanted to join, some didn't, and eventually the Union kind of split apart. Um, and then the next attempt was something called the Dominion of New England, which was instead of like the Confederation of the 1640s, which sprung up from below from the actual colonists, the Dominion was opposed, imposed from above uh, by the Crown, which thought that it would it would make colonial affairs more efficient and, and more profitable for the empire. But it, it took away the you know what what there was of sovereignty for each of the colonies, uh, you know, embodied in their in their charters. And the people really didn't like this uh, in New England, and they rebelled against the Dominion of New England and overthrew it, actually. This is right after the Glorious Revolution in England itself. So, you know, I say in the book that the first American Revolution was not fought to establish a union, which is the way we, we think about it, but it was actually 70 years earlier, so to destroy a union. And it took, it took, there's a reason it took 70 or 80 years for the colonists to come together, you know, against Britain and fight for independence. That was because, as I say, they really wanted nothing to do with one another. 
Yeah. By the time we get to the 1770s, I mean, they're, they're like separate countries. I mean, the, the culture, the language is is different in, in, in New England than it is in New York or Pennsylvania or Virginia. I mean, these are, they really don't have much in common. No, and they were very unacquainted with one another. When everybody shows up in Philadelphia in 1774 for the Continental Congress, they're total strangers to one another. They are, you know, John Adams says that they're, they're like ambassadors from a dozen belligerent nations in Europe. Um, so not only do they not know each other, they don't want to know each other. And what they do learn about each other, they really don't like. Uh, as George Washington discovers in the Continental Army Encampment, um, where New Englanders and Southerners, for instance, are mingling for the first time and getting to know each other, and they hate each other. <laughs> you know, Washington describes the Yankees as, as kind of disgustless, and uh, it goes, the insults go back the other way as well. They, they thought of their colonies as their separate countries, and that's where their loyalties lay. So they come together to sign the Declaration of Independence, thinking that they have a, it'll give them a better chance if they're unified in the war against England. In, in other words, it comes out, it's a means to, to an end. It, exactly. It's not an end in itself. It springs out of their, out of fear and, and, uh, necessity, emergency. Right. Exactly. Exactly. It's an accidental byproduct of the revolution rather than the intended goal, which is why all the sappy language that our politicians and, you know, all too many of our writers use to describe the American founding is, is I think, so misplaced and misbegotten because it's really has, you know, forming a nation had almost nothing to do with what they were after, at least in 1776. Right. I mean, it's it's Franklin saying that, you know, if we don't get hang together, we assuredly will hang alone because the British Empire is the superpower of the world and, and uh, presumed invincible. I mean, the, the um, signers of independence that know that it's a war they're not likely to win. Yeah, so the fear is essentially the glue at the very beginning, among, among a few other things, but it's especially fear. And you, know, you quote Franklin, his other great contribution to the discourse of American unity was join or die. From 20 right. years earlier, you know, in the Albany Congress of 1754, where he put forward this plan of colonial union, which was, you know, we think of join or die, the disjointed snake cartoon as prefiguring the nationality that Americans would eventually achieve. But it was actually rejected, you know, given the choice between union and death, many Americans chose to chose death or, or at least to take the risk of it. Um, and that kind of fear, you know, project fear, they called it in Britain, of course, during during the Brexit referendum. Um, you know, isn't doesn't usually supply a very stable basis for a nation. Right. So what happens 11 years later when they get to the making of the, the Constitution? Now we're in 1780, the summer of 1787. And how are they going to put their profound differences together into a you know, document they can all agree to? Yeah, well, you know, What's interesting is that the the country basically falls apart in the 1780s. Um, it's partly due to the Articles of Confederation. It's partly due to built-in weaknesses of this country that many people, you know, didn't even think was going to survive the war. James Madison has a quote at one point saying that the present union will not survive the present war. Many people didn't expect it to to last, and it very nearly didn't. It, it, it kind of fell into civil war and all kinds of sectional strife in, in 1785, 1786. But the people who gather in Philadelphia are not representative, you know, of the country uh, at large, in the obvious ways, of course, with regards to race and gender, but also property and politics. Um, 
that you know there were a lot of people who didn't want to replace the Articles of Confederation. And it's kind of similar as if like there's an extra legal assembly. So it's kind of as if the Koch brothers just got a bunch of people together today to write a new constitution and totally ignored the uh, strictures about amendment um, that were in the existing one. So they, you know, they, they were able to come together and to agree to terms, um, largely because they were all of a similar mindset. They hated democracy. They wanted to concentrate power uh, in the few. And, and um, you know, they, they, they did have differences. And, and that's basically what I talk about in my chapter about the Constitution, especially, of course, over slavery. Um, the South was never going to join a union if it had any you know, anything against slavery in there. And they, they actually wanted additional protections and, and really the ownership of human beings. Um, and Northerners, you know, put up, some of them put up a little bit of a fight, but they didn't, they didn't care as much about it as the South. So they were willing to compromise on it. What interests me is, is our judgment today, which we all basically share. Even, even the most right-wingers, you know, are willing to regret the compromises afforded slavery in the Constitution. But would we prefer that they hadn't ratified it at all? I, I don't know. I, I quote people at the time, northern anti-federalists, who wanted to reject the Constitution because of the protections that it gave to slavery. I, I think that if we uh, want to say that, that had we lived then, we would take that same stand, we need to think today about what evils, you know, not equal to slavery, but others uh, that we countenance for the sake of national unity. All right. So... They come up with the Constitution, which is is is, is really, uh, as you say, I mean, these are rich and well-educated people, merchant north and the plantation south. But what they set up is 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 really a kind of enlightened oligarchy, right? Where the Madison says that the men with the most wisdom to discern and the most virtue to pursue the common good of the society are the ones that are going to arrange the distribution of law and property, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's set up to the advantage of people of wealth and property. Is that right? I, I think that is right. Um, you know, one of the origins of my work on this book was reading Charles Beard, you know, the famous progressive historian of a century ago, who, who had this kind of narrow argument that the founders, the framers of the Constitution, uh, wrote it for for their own benefit, you know, to pro- to for their own profit. Um, you know, a, a thesis that has come under attack over the years and has been refined. But I, I basically buy the overall general story about that. Um, and yeah, I think uh, you know, I, I saw a sign around the same time uh, these Black Lives Matter protests that said the system isn't broken; it's fixed. And it occurred to me that that's that's basically what Beard was saying about the Constitution that the framers set up this system that if it's you know distributing the most property and wealth to the very few and largely leaving the rest of us out in the cold. If that's the case, that's that's the system working as intended. Not It's not broken. Still, the differences between the, the different colonies remain. I mean, they, they, uh, right. they suppress their, their uh, disliking and, and distrust of one another. And then, but what then happens through the early, you know, between, between the the Constitution and the Civil War. I mean, there are still urges to secede or or to uh, break up the Union, and and uh, that continues, right? 
Absolutely. Well, what's most striking to me is that they they crop up again within a year of of the establishment of the new government. By 1790, a lot of Americans, not just you know former anti-federalists, but people in Congress, people people who had supported the Constitution, are saying, "Oh, maybe this isn't working. You know, maybe this maybe this new Constitution was a total failure. Maybe by making us work everything out under a single roof,、uh, it's actually made things worse." And and there's you know there's some reason to believe that I mean immediately there's the Whiskey Rebellion in 1794, which was a fairly serious insurrection against the federal government,、uh, serious enough that Washington tasked Hamilton, the Treasury Secretary, with、uh, you know leading an army over the Allegheny Mountains to put it down.、Um, and you know those were people, of course, who didn't want to pay taxes because they didn't they didn't have the money to pay taxes.、Um, So, so that they saw the Constitution as strengthening a government that that was hostile to to popular and especially to Western interests,、um, and then you know throughout the 1790s, probably one of the most vicious、uh, decades in in American history, the idea of disunion and secession kind of passes back and forth between the Republicans and the Federalists, depending on who's in power. So, in 1798, amid a, this war scare with with France, John Adams、uh, passed you know signs the Alien and Sedition Acts, which basically Uh, you know, forbids、uh, criticism of, of the United States government, and especially of the presidency. In response, Jefferson and Madison, now in the opposition, passed the, the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions, which which threaten to nullify those laws. And, and Jefferson even wants to threaten to secede from the Union if they're not repealed. But once Jefferson takes the state in eighteen hundred, he he now insists on an indissolvable Union. Once the New Englanders, Federalists, now out of power, start wondering if if they should secede from the Union and maybe even rejoin Britain. You know, this is the story that that actually leads up to the now famous Hamilton Bird duel, because Hamilton accuses Bird fairly justly of being in cahoots with these New England separatists who are scheming to set up a separate Northern Union.、Uh, Bird resents that and and shoots him dead. But the idea of Northern disunion continued and, and crops up again in the War of eighteen twelve. These kinds of realizations or discoveries, you know, none of this is unknown to American historians, but but I think I think are fairly.、Uh, Obscure to to most lay readers,、um, or certainly voters, but also in the in the election of you say the seventeen nineties a vicious decade, and and that's true. I mean, they 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 are people are fighting with each other in the streets, right? I mean, in the election、yeah. of eighteen hundred, I mean, federalists and the republicans are throwing rocks at each other. Well, worse. I mean, very worse. Nearly happened. You know, today we're talking about a contested election where where the results are not terribly clear. And that was true in 1800 as well, where where、um, you know they hadn't yet differentiated the ballots between president and vice president. So these geniuses in Philadelphia, in their infinite wisdom, made a system where the first place vote getter would become the president, and the second place would be the vice president. In 1796, that had been kind of a disaster because Adams and Jefferson were by then mortal opponents, and、um, Jefferson very nearly did not serve under Adams, and that that would have probably thrown the country into civil war. In 1800, they tried to avoid this,、um, and everyone's You know, playing their their ballots very、uh, cannily to try to try to avoid that, but they forget to shave off a few votes for Jefferson's running mate, Aaron Burr, and and Jefferson and Burr come out tied.、Um, and Burr is a fairly shifty character, so he's willing to at least talk to the Federalists about forming some kind of alliance.、Uh, you know, Jefferson and Burr were both Republicans, and and elevating him to the presidency instead of Jefferson, who had clearly been everyone's first choice. And this this deadlock goes on,、um, you know. Inauguration day would, then, of course, was March fourth. It goes on until about a week before inauguration day, and they're doing dozens of ballots, and and it's a tie every time.、Uh, 
um, in, in the House of Representatives to which, you know, a tied election is thrown. And it very nearly came to violence. I mean, people like John Quincy Adams, who was watching sort of horrified from a diplomatic post in Europe, thought that the only way that the crisis could end was disunion or civil war. Um, so that, that's kind of, you, you mentioned the 1790s, though. I, I think I have this image of, um, during this war scare with France in 1798, John Adams, the president, appears uh, on a balcony in Philadelphia in full military dress and addresses this kind of drunk, belligerent mob of Federalists uh, who, who are prepared to do battle with Republicans in the streets. Um, you know, I think when we talk about Trump as unprecedented, I mean, to a large extent, that's true. To, you know, in another way, our history is a lot more uh, complicated and interesting than, than we often depict it as. All right, and then the, there's the move on the part of the New England, some of the New England states, to secede from the United States. And you know, during the War of 1812, because the New England uh, states are, want to trade with Britain, <laughs> mm-hmm. and then we'll go on. I mean, and then you know, again, we're now in the years before the, the Civil War, but there are. Uh, attempts to set up separate republics in in Texas, and I mean, then there are the Mormons and the mm-hmm. and, and California. And talk about that. I will. Yeah. So the New Englanders is kind of an interesting um, example because here here you have a group of people who basically supported the Constitution and, and the early federal government. In the 1790s, when Jefferson and Madison were talking about states' rights, these are the people who are insisting on national supremacy and, and national unity at any cost. Governor Morris, who, who, you know, was best friends with Hamilton, um, you know, and survived, unlike Hamilton, to see what the country became under his political opponents, Jefferson and Madison, was absolutely horrified. Um, and, you know, he, he backed the Constitution in 1787 very strongly and was kind of one of the first visionary, you know, people who, who, who favored national government. But he actually, he turns towards disunion during the War of 1812 and writes these really vicious letters saying that there's no magic in the sound of, of the word union for me. I wish somebody could tell me, this is Governor Morris speaking, on, on, uh, to what purpose it endures. So th- these people were very heartbroken that the country that they thought that they had created had kind of been taken from them. And that to me is a very instructive example about how quickly patriotism can turn into separatism. That, that those two things are kind of two sides of the same coin, uh, where if you have these very um, deeply held beliefs about what the country is and what purpose it should serve, if it veers off in a different direction, um, you know, you, you can very quickly turn against it. And love, you know, love turns to hate. Um, so that's the New Englanders. After, afterwards, um, just skipping ahead, yeah, this was kind of one of my really, really interesting, you know, discoveries is that that in this era that we know of as manifest destiny, uh, where everybody wanted supposedly for the country to march across the continent, um, you know, the, the phrase manifest destiny comes from a single editorial in the Democratic Review. But when you actually read that editorial, they're not arguing for the United States to necessarily conquer the continent. They're arguing for white Anglo-Saxon Protestant men to dominate the continent, uh, Americans, but not necessarily the United States. A lot of people at the time were perfectly fine with uh, dividing up the continent into, you know, a few different republics. Um, in Texas, of course, they break away from Mexico in 1836, and they seek annexation to the United States for various reasons off uh, by about eight years or so. But in that time, a lot of Texans decide, hey, you know what? We don't really want to join the United States. There's this rising abolitionist movement in the North. 
um, slavery, which is the reason why we declared independence from Mexico in the first place, might not be so secure if we join the United States. Maybe instead the southern states should secede from the Union and join Texas, and then we can march to the Goshen and have this huge slave republic. Um, that was a very popular idea um, for a while, and I think existed once Texas joined the Union and was part of the reason why they ended up leaving again in 1861. As for California, it too, like Texas, was this kind of renegade Mexican province. Um, it was on the other side of the continent. There was no transcontinental railroad. There was no Panama Canal. It took months to get from, say, New York to San Francisco. Um, so there was always this idea of the western coast of the continent forming its own independent republic. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, you know, who as president was, was you know, certainly against the New England separatist movement um, and favored national unity, in 1815, when the fur tycoon on Jacob Astor established a trading post in Oregon on the Columbia River, Jefferson writes to him and says, that's great, thank you, um, but that's probably going to be a separate country. You know, our sons will go there, that settle it, and they'll be friends with the Atlantic uh, Coast people, but that's probably going to be a separate country. Um, and even Daniel Webster, who, you know, we, we think of as you know, liberty and union inseparable, he didn't necessarily think so when it came to California and Oregon. He thought that that could be, you know, a new republic, as Jefferson thought, devoted to liberty, but it wouldn't be part of the union. So, so maybe liberty and union were not so, uh, so inseparable. Um, and there was a lot of support for that on the ground. You know, these settlers, when they, when they left to move to California and Oregon, uh, were leaving the United States without any guarantee. This is before the Mexican-American War. Uh, without any guarantee that that the boundaries of the country were going to be extended to to bring them back in, and they were perfectly fine. Uh, and that, that those sentiments continue right up to the Civil War, really, when uh, during the secession crisis and the South breaks away, a lot of people in California say, you know what, we don't we don't want to be part of this war. Uh, we're, we're Northerners and Southerners. We are, you know, a lot of Chinese inhabitants, uh, European immigrants after the gold rush, people from all over the world. What do we want to have to do with this crisis back, back east? Let's establish a separate republic and go our own way. Um, so, yeah, it's a very, very longstanding idea. Um that the continent, you know, this kind of radical, uh, radically open future for the continent, that it wasn't inevitable that the United States would stretch, as we say, from sea to shining sea. Oh, how do we get to the Civil War then? What, what is it that, that uh, brings the Civil War, you know, into full flame? Yeah, I mean, you know, this this has been covered a thousand times, so I, I didn't yeah. really come up with, a, I mean, a brand new theory about no, it. We no, all know the, no. the, the, yeah. the major incidents. But my, my take on it, and, and again, not, not anything out of whole cloth here, but I focus on the North in the 1850s. It's, it's not a decade where the Southern separatist movement was building and building. They were fairly happy in the Union. They were very happy with the presidents of the 1850s, Millard Fillmore and Franklin Pierce, James E. Buchanan. These were South-friendly people, so they weren't questioning the federal government. The people who were doing so were Northerners, increasingly anti-slavery Northerners, who excuse me, objected to the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, didn't want any part of rounding up runaways and sending them back to bondage. Of course, you know, Bleeding Kansas occurs where this, you know, so if, I mean, basically you ask the question, what, what brings us to the Civil War? It's really the fight over slavery in the Western territories, you know, which has been kind of the theory for, for quite a long time. And what you have is both sides saying, you know, laying out demands or, or the, the implicit or sometimes explicit threat is or we'll secede from the union or we'll break it up. It's not, it's not worth it for us northerners to perpetuate the union if slavery is going to be allowed uh, to spread everywhere. 
to all the new territories and maybe even back into the northern states that had once abolished it. And of course, the southerners have exactly the opposite demand. And I, I think it's kind of a fluke of history that the southerners were the ones who took the fateful step. You know, it's not like northerners had not been considering disunion. My favorite heroes of the book, and, and I, I want to be careful, they were, they were fairly marginal characters, but the, the, the spirit of their complaint was, was much larger than their actual numbers, was the disunion abolitionists under the leadership of people like William Lloyd Garrison and, you know, for a time, Frederick Douglass, though he then changed his mind. And they said that the North should secede from the Union, should break up the country to protest and to undermine slavery, that the compromises of the Constitution gave slavery certain safeguards and guarantees without which the cost of slaves would plummet and the institution would gradually or quickly disappear. A lot of historians have said that, you know, they, they were more interested in having a clean conscience than in doing anything to actually help enslaved people in the South. I don't think that's actually the case. As I say, they had this kind of practical plan for how disunion would, would undermine slavery. I, I don't know if it would have worked. We, we don't know. There's been some interesting, you know, science fiction and alternative history novels, uh, considering various scenarios. Um, but this idea of, of either slavery can survive or the union, but not both spread to, to many other Northerners who, who were not necessarily abolitionists even, but who resented the sway that the South had in the union and, and just wanted to say goodbye. And this, this, this idea spread throughout, uh, Northern political culture. And I would argue even underwrote, um, you know, the rise of the Republican party in, in the 1850s, which, which began, we, we think of its origins in the civil war, of course, where Lincoln is insisting on national unity. Uh, but it actually began as a state's rights party backing, uh, challenges to federal supremacy in Wisconsin and Ohio, where, where there were these fugitive slave cases, where the state governments, you know, actually put up a pretty fierce resistance to, to the federal government. So that's kind of the story of the 1850s. All right. Then we know the story of the Civil War. What, but now the Civil War is over. The North has won. The Union has won, but it doesn't, what, what is the idea of reconstruction? I mean, the, I mean, Actually, I mean, you write somewhere that, and other people have written it too, that the uh, the Reconstruction overturned the Union victory. Right, right, exactly. In other words, the Southerners end up winning the war, and there's no trend toward unifying the whole, right? I mean, people are still locked in their separate and divergent views. That's largely the case. So let, me, let me start, like... I think that's surprising that Reconstruction ended the way it did because the North went to went to war not to free the slaves or on, beha- on behalf of black civil rights, but to but to preserve the Union. That that's what really motivated the soldiers and 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 most Northerners. They realize now, you know, Webster had claimed that liberty and Union were inseparable. For abolitionists, that had not been the case. Liberty and Union were opposed before the Civil War, but now that the South had left, it could be against slavery and against uh, and for the Union. So they went to war. A lot of people had doubts about it, especially after the Emancipation Proclamation. You know, Northern Democrats rioted in New York City in the draft riots of 1863, which is essentially, you know, the Civil War coming to Manhattan. So there was a lot of lingering doubt about whether this enterprise of enforcing the Constitution in the South at the, at the point of a gun was really worth it, especially if there was no longer a threat to national unity and the only threat was was to these you know to these newly freed people and and their rights to uh, vote and participate in government. So at the beginning of Reconstruction, there's a fairly radical vision you know that's put forward by people like Frederick Douglass and um, 
Thaddeus Stevens of, of what a truly united nation might look like. And that would be, you know, eviscerating the idea of states 14th amendment, which makes citizenship national. And, and, you know, once there, there's resistance from president Andrew Johnson, they send the army into the South and, and basically occupy the, the former Confederacy and force them to accept the new constitutional amendments. And this is supposed to create a, a new nation and, you know, a, a multiracial democracy, one that's truly united, not in the kind of cheap, compromised tradition way, but truly united where everybody counts and everybody matters uh, without any exclusion. But they, but the Northerners, the white Northerners, uh, soon grow very tired of, of this. Uh, there's a financial panic in 1873. There's massive uh, corruption scandals under the Ulysses S. Grant administration. And by the mid-1870s, Northerners are fairly desperate to give up on Reconstruction. And then in 1876, you have another contested presidential election, as in 1800, which many people think is going to devolve into violence. Um, you know, I personally think this is kind of the, the best historical antecedent for what we might see this fall, where you see states, you know, sending uh, disputed electoral slates to Washington to be counted for the election. And it, it throws everything uh, up in the air. And, and a lot of people thought that just a decade after Appomattox, there was going to be another civil war. That was eventually averted with a compromise with Drew federal troops from the South and, you know, essentially ending reconstruction. So I'm not sure that I would agree, you know, just bring it full circle. I'm not sure I would agree that, that the problem with reconstruction is that it left the country as divided or as separated as it had been before. The problem in that era is really unity is the insistence on unity, whatever the cost. And that cost in that era, as in other eras of American history was, was largely borne by people of color who were excluded from the, you know, the, the national polity. And the results of the war effectively repealed. So th this is an instance where Americans, as they, as many had been before the war, are so insistent on compromise and on consensus and unity that they're willing to give up on on the uh, you know the supposed ideals that the war had been fought to preserve. Okay, well, take us up to the present. I mean, I mean, let's let's cut to the you know what you call the the cold civil war. I mean. I'll, a lot of the scenes that you describe in the book are being represented in the commotion of the summer of 2020. Right. I argue that, and I think this is probably one of the more provocative arguments, is, is that the idea of secession and disunion did not disappear after the Civil War. That's usually what we're taught. You know, there's this idea that the, the United States are, you know, plural, became the United States is, a singular. Um, but, but what I've seen is, is that that's, that's not really how it worked. There was, that was kind of a larger grammatical shift that explains why that changed. And it had nothing to do with the country becoming more tightly bound or united or something. And the idea of secession actually does crop up throughout the 20th century. In the 1890s, Western and Southern populists talk about secession. That happens again in 1933, uh, when the Great Depression is, is at its worst moment before Roosevelt's inauguration. And then the 1960s, you have these kind of fringe nationalists, uh, Black nationalists, Chicano nationalists, um, lot, you know, a lot of different counterculture types also talking about secession from the union. Then you go to today. Um, I mean, there's two, there's two strands in that final chapter, the, the Cold Civil War. One is the return of secessionism to American politics. Uh, again, still not in a, in a very, you know, threatening way, but that might change. In the last 20 years, we've, we've seen the idea of one single state separating from the union kind of returned to national life in a way that hasn't been the case since before the civil war. We, we kind of take it for granted. Now there's these joke movements in, you know, one place or another, um, 
you know, of just a few, you know, a handful of individuals in Vermont, in Alaska, Hawaii, California, Texas, the South, uh, the Northwest, Cascadia, um, and lots of other places in New England again. And that's, this is not normal. You know, that's not, that's, that's not, that's not really how it's been for the rest of American history. And it suggests something to me that they've, they've now returned in this era of great division. So then the other thread is, is yeah, this idea of, of violence and disunion returning to American life. It, it, what it suggests to me is that after the Civil War, this massively traumatic event, the idea of secession and disunion was repressed, was pushed beneath the surface of, you know, our national mind. But that doesn't really work. It's, it's now burst back. Uh, to the surface, and and we we have to deal with it. So this history of disunion, I think, you know, offers a, a backstory to the president. What we're seeing with, you know, the president essentially declaring war on the American people, or at least some of them. Um, that 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 more you know complacent, consensus-minded history is really offer. So how to conclude, or or how do we walk away from this very? Fine book. I mean, what are your th- what are, what are your thoughts at the end? I mean, what what is the uh, as they say on the internet the, the takeaway? I guess the takeaway is that I think we've been taking the union for granted. We kind of assume that um, this is the way you know the this is the way it's always been, and this is the way it always will be. That the Civil War was an exception to the rest of American history. Obviously, it's it's still causing. Lots, lots of trouble and there's unfinished business, but that largely the country has lived up to its name, you know, the United States of America, which I, I find to be kind of a, a bizarre name for a country, um, very amb- ambiguous as to whether it's a singular or a plural noun, um, and largely aspirational. You know, when they gave us that name, they were hoping that we would eventually become united. It wasn't a statement that, that we were. So I think that by taking the union for granted, we kind of neglect... Well, I mean, this was the hardest part of the book to write. I, I went back and forth every day about whether I wanted the country to break up or not. You know, was this a was this a history of the argument for it? Um, and I hope that that's kind of a productive ambiguity at, at the end of the book. The epigram for the book comes from Walt Whitman, and it says, "You know, you, you weren't going to be held together by the lawyers or by arms or by a piece of paper. Nothing, nothing coheres that way." And what he's saying is that love is what holds the country together. That without that, without seeing each other, seeing the stake that you have in one another, uh, the country cannot survive. I kind of think that's the way it is today. If if we want the country to work, I think that that requires certain things um, from us, both on an individual basis and in how we interact with one another uh, in politics. But also, but also, you know, more structurally, I think I think we need to take a look at the hard, a hard look at the Constitution, and see what structures are present from the very beginning that have been shaping our, our politics and making it not only more divisive but but totally dysfunctional. I, I would like to see the country really and truly unite. What that means to me is is more or less getting rid of the states, getting rid of the Senate for one thing, where the states are given equal representation despite having you know vast differences in population. There's no reason why California should have two senators, even though it has 68 times the population of Wyoming, which also has two senators. That's that's division. You know, that's 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 enshrined in our politics today in the 21st century. These very arbitrary divisions laid down by you know 17th century British kings and 18th century surveyors and 19th century railroad you know impresarios. So I would abolish the Senate. I would probably have a new constitutional convention actually. And just take a hard look at the whole thing and, and see what's working and see what's not. And once we do that, we can decide whether we really want to stay together. It's a marvelous book, Richard Kreitner, and, and thank you. The book is Break It Up. The subtitle is Secession, Division, 
and the secret history of America's imperfect union. Anyway, Richard, thank you for talking to us, and the um, I wish you well with, with, with the book. Thank you, Lewis. I appreciate it. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.